Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. So we're on uh, sermon number 11. I don't know if you guys ever thought we'd get to the end of this Kingdom of God series or not, but uh, we're getting close, we're getting close, and and next week, I'm going to spill the beans here, John, uh, our own John Ely is going to be uh, closing us out uh, with Kingdom Allegiance. Is that right? Kingdom Allegiance? Yep. Awesome. So, so you won't. This is my last Kingdom uh, sermon. It's not the last one, but it's my last Kingdom sermon. And so, uh, I thought it would be really cool for us today to talk about uh, what do we do with the gospel? What do we do with the gospel? And so, for the first part, we're going to talk about what we've been talking about and uh, dwelling in for the last ten weeks. And then we're going to talk about what, what kind of response should that prompt in us. And it's going to come down to a simple word, change. <laughs> Hearing this kind of message, understanding what it means, um, it leads us to change. It leads us to change. So uh, let's first reflect on what we've seen in this series. And we began, we began this whole series talking about the gospel message itself. And most of us, I, I know I'll speak for myself, most of us, uh, grew up in an environment where we heard uh, the gospel of the cross. But we didn't really, I can speak for myself, I didn't really hear the gospel of the kingdom much growing up. I didn't understand what the gospel of the kingdom was. And what we saw in that first sermon was that Jesus did not really preach the gospel of the cross. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. Um, and we know that the message of the kingdom is different than the message of the cross. Those two got wedded together in the book of Acts period after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Um, so let's, we'll go back to Matthew 16. That's where we'll begin this morning. If you have your Bible, you can join me in Matthew 16. And what, it, uh, what strikes me about Matthew 16 is this is one of the first times that the gospel of the cross gets preached it gets preached by the greatest preacher that has ever lived. It gets preached to someone who would be so influential in the early church that half of the book of Acts uh, follows him around and shows you all the things that he does. And yet, the greatest preacher who ever lived telling this gospel of the cross to someone who would be so instrumental to the early church, he rejects it. <laughs> Peter rejects the gospel of the cross. Uh, in Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he even includes the good news, like, I'm going to die, I'll be dead for three days, but then I'm going to get back up. And Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Peter, this is one of the first times that the gospel of the cross gets preached and it gets rejected. <laughs> Verse 23, but he turned, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had to change. Peter had to repent of what he thought the Messiah would be. And he wasn't the only one. We're going to see that this is a common theme. So we also saw that this message of the kingdom uh, that Jesus preached uh, was preached all throughout the book of Acts. We saw it uh, with Philip in Samaria. We saw it with Paul throughout the book of Acts, and then culminating in Acts 28. And then we saw that the gospel of the cross was added to that gospel of the kingdom. That was what we did in the first sermon. 
In the second sermon, we talked about the bad news. To have good news, it's unfortunate, but you have to have bad news. And the bad news was God wanted so many things for humanity. He wanted specific things for Adam and Eve. He wanted them to have dominion as servant leaders over God's good creation. He wanted them to bring the best out of creation. We talked about uh, animal husbandry. We talked about uh, plants and cultivating plants. Uh, That's what God wanted Adam and Eve to do. But instead, they rebelled. And that has led to all the problems that we face, even to this day. We face death. We face war. We face uh, separation from God, separation from all the good things that God has wanted. And throughout time, humanity has struggled with those things because of that bad news, because of that initial break. But God, we've seen throughout this series too, that God, in response to that, has always been reaching out to people throughout history to draw them back in uh, through various ways. And so God, thankfully, did not blow the human experiment up. He did not blow all this. He didn't just say, hey, you guys messed up. I'm going to move on to this other planet. I have all these planets and all these galaxies. I can just go to this other galaxy and start working with people over there. He didn't blow it all up. Instead of starting over, God decided he wanted to redeem humanity and redeem this fallen world. And so throughout the ages, God has done many things. He's made covenants. He's worked with different people. He has sent prophets and prophetesses, leaders, priests, judges, kings. And finally, last of all, he sent his son. And while our current life in Christ is is incredibly rich, it's dynamic, it's full, it does not even compare to what life's going to look like when Jesus comes back. So that was the second sermon. In the third sermon, we talked about kingdom future, how the fullness of the kingdom is uh, what we're going to see when when Jesus comes back. We saw the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2, that garden scene, uh, pictured again in the last two chapters of the Bible. So the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible have amazing symmetry, Revelation 21 and 22 with Genesis 1 and 2. We saw that the final act of God's plan involves the restoration of the earth and the heavens and how we have a place in that to serve as servant kings and queens throughout all of eternity. And so again, the fullness of that kingdom of God is when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, when, as N.T. Wright says, when everything wrong with the world is made right. That's what the kingdom of God is, and that's going to happen when Jesus returns. That was kingdom future. And then we talked about kingdom anticipated in the fourth sermon, and we saw three ways in which we can see the kingdom in our lives today in an anticipatory sense, And this is a slide that we looked at before. We saw that the first piece of that is the power of the Spirit and what that allows us to accomplish. Uh, We saw that it was kingdom ethics, how to be a follower of Christ, what do we do, how do we act in this fallen world. And number three, we saw that we can live through kingdom citizenship. How we relate to the world around us is grounded in this idea that we are not citizens of the United States primarily. We're not citizens of this world primarily. We are primarily citizens of this future world, this future kingdom, and that changes how we view uh, how we live in the world around us. So the point of all that, the point of really a lot of these first four sermons and indeed the next six too, was the idea that when we understand more about what the kingdom of God is and how it impacts our life today, now when I read my Bible, now when I go to Corinthians, when I go to Ephesians, when I go to these New Testament places, uh, even when it doesn't use the word kingdom, these can still be kingdom passages. If we're talking about how to live in Christ, that's a kingdom passage. He's our king. We're trying to imitate the life that he lived. 
if it talks about the Spirit. We saw that the Spirit was supposed to be a kingdom thing and that it got poured out early on the day of Pentecost. So if it talks about the Spirit, then that's a kingdom passage. If it talks about our status as citizens or how we're living as exiles or foreigners in this world, that's a kingdom passage. These are all things uh, we can re recognize in the New Testament documents that are kingdom-themed. And then for the past six weeks, we've been exploring specific different kingdom themes. And so in light of this, I want to return to a graphic that I showed in the first four weeks, but I haven't really shown it in the last six. There are three kingdom themes I want us to pull together from this series. The first one is what God won in the beginning, he gets in the end. And we saw that with Genesis 1 and 2 and with Revelation 21 and 22. The second part was God taught throughout time principles of selflessness, sacrifice, and upside-down leadership with the intent for us to follow that example. And then the third one is that the greatest desires of our hearts, justice, fairness, peace, prosperity for all, uh, true love, all these things, they are not found in the world. They're only found and promised by God. And in their fullness, we're only going to experience them in the kingdom. So for me, um, looking at these three patterns and then sort of thinking about the last six weeks we've spent with, you know, kingdom uh, justice and righteousness and power and love and all the things that we've looked at, how many of us desire those things? How many of, those, of us, deep down inside, these are some of the biggest things, some of the biggest questions, some of the biggest desires of our heart is how can we bring justice? How can we experience God's power? How can we really experience true love? These are some of the deepest things that are deeply ingrained within us. And they're things that only God can really give. Peace. How many people in the world want peace today? And they try to get it by scrolling on Facebook or getting likes and shares or going on Instagram and putting all the filters on and looking the best that they can possibly look digitally, right? How many ways do we go about things brokenly when God wants us to see them in Him in a more complete and full sense? To me, that's the power of the message that we bring to the world. You want to talk about telling people good news? What about having love? People desperately crave love. People desperately crave peace and acceptance and all these things. This is the power of the kingdom message that we bring to people. And so I think based on the 10 weeks we've spent, uh, we can see the gospel message bigger than ever before. And this is what we have to offer people. How exciting is that? So before we get to our response to the gospel message and really what we should expect from others who come into contact with this gospel message for the first time, I just want to again sum things up very quickly. The gospel of the kingdom is that God is going to fix the world and he's going to allow all of those who have faith in Christ to live in a restored earth in eternity. And this is called in the Bible eternal life, which more literally translated would be life in the age to come, life in this coming kingdom age. And because we have this knowledge, we know what God's plan is, we can act in this world, act in this fallen world in a way that invites people into that, in, into that to see God's goodness, his mercy, and his love. So in light of all this, we've been doing all this work for 10 weeks now, building up this idea of what the kingdom of God is and exploring different facets. We could have done this for a whole year, by the way. There's so many different themes and ways we could pull these kingdom threads throughout the whole Bible. I stopped myself at six. 
Uh, partially because I wanted to finish it before Easter, if I'm being honest. <laughs> we're going to talk about the gospel of the kingdom, then we're going to get to Easter and talk about the gospel of the cross for just at least one sermon, you know. Um, so now the question is, well, what do we do? What do we do? What do I, you know, many of us in this room, many of us watching online, uh, we are Christians. We've been following Christ for a long time. Um, what, what do I do with it? If I'm already a Christian, if I'm already following Christ. Um, and then we also have to think about, like, what would someone who's hearing this message for the first time or thinking about it in a post-Christian world where they've heard a, a broken version, possibly, of the gospel, uh, an, an, an incomplete version of the gospel at some point in their lives, and they rejected it because it was broken and because it was incomplete, and we're bringing them a more complete version of that, right? Now, what is their response going to be? What should their response be? So let's turn to Luke chapter 3, those of you who have your Bible with you. Luke chapter 3. And this uh, is talking about John the Baptist here, what John the Baptist did, what he expected of people. And we're going to find that uh, one of the main things that people are to do when they come into contact with the gospel is, what the Bible says is repent. It's called repenting. And all that repenting means, it's a technical term we use in Christianity, but all that it means is to change our minds. And what we're going to find about that is it's not... Uh, monolithic. It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing. It's unique. It's as unique to each of us as God's call in our lives is unique to each of us. There's only one way. It's through Jesus. That's not the unique part. The unique part is what we have to do in our lives, what God shows us in our lives, repentance looks like and change looks like. And we're going to see that here in Luke, the very beginning of uh, this idea of repentance. In Luke chapter 3, verse 3, And he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's anticipating, and he, you know, elsewhere he talks about him preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's he's bringing out this gospel of the kingdom for the first time and saying, look, the guy that's coming after me, he's going to bring it in full force, but I'm preparing you, I'm starting to prepare you for this. And it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now look at what what happens when the crowds ask him what they should do. Verse 10 it says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? He's already, you know, we've already heard it's it's a baptism of repentance. This is a gospel of repentance changing. Verse 11, And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Each of these groups of people were asked to repent. They were asked to change. But the point is, how they were to change was unique to them. And that's true for us. And that's true for the people that we come into contact with. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus started proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he also asked people to repent. And the second part of that is he asked them to believe the message, believe the gospel. And of course, we know this would have included repentance or or being upset and wanting to change from their sin. Sure, in that, every person is unique. All of our sins are different uh, before conversion, before coming to Christ, all of our backgrounds, the things that we still deal with after Christ, it's all different. It's all unique. But there's also something specific that had to change too. Let's, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. The thing that Peter had to repent of 
is something that's incredibly common. It's incredibly common, especially in that time frame. Peter had to repent of this idea that his king wasn't going to die. He had to repent and accept that, yes, Jesus was going to die. Because the idea of the Messiah was so wrapped up in being a king and having political authority and having an army, and it was all wrapped up in all these you know, conventional ideas about power and domination. And Peter had to set that at the foot of the cross too. In Acts chapter 2, Peter has just made this amazing uh, proclamation of the gospel and a lot of what he's unpacking for people is why Jesus had to die. That was the controversial part for them. For the Jews of the first century, that is what was the stumbling block for them, was believing that the Messiah could die at all. I mean, that seems crazy to them. In Acts 2, verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and, and for all who are far, far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then in verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So I want to first point out that repentance and baptism are mentioned together, uh, just like it was in Luke 3. I'm not going to go into baptism today. That's a conversation for another day. The point that I'm making here about repentance and changing is, is that Peter just finished a sermon where essentially his main point was the Messiah had to die. So they had to repent of that specific belief in order to believe the message that Peter was presenting to them. But when it gets to the practical side of, okay, well, what do I do now? I accept this message. I want to follow Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. But then verse 40, what does it say? With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, what? Save yourself from this crooked generation. In other words, the work of repentance, the work of change doesn't end when you first accept Christ. It continues. It continues. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about the foolishness of the gospel, the foolishness of the message that we have to share with the world. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit in sort of our understanding of things to maybe help us understand, because we Many of us in this room have already accepted Christ. We've believed the gospel. We've been following Jesus for a long time. And it's hard for us to distance ourselves from what we believe and how much it makes sense to us versus what it sounds like to someone who hasn't heard this message in a long time or never has heard it at all. So one of the things that Paul unpacks for us in 1 Corinthians 1 is this idea that your king is... Uh, was crucified by the Roman authorities. Oh yeah, but God, God raised him from the dead. First of all, who's heard of a guy being raised from the dead never to die again? This is the only world religion that makes that claim. Okay, so that's strange. Let's just put that out on the table. That's weird, okay? And now saying that he's been exalted to heaven and now he serves in some capacity as king now and will experience a fuller capacity of being king when he returns to earth. I mean, now we're talking about like, this zombie alien guy coming back to earth and like ruling over all of us, like this is a weird message, okay? Imagine, imagine this, imagine, I'm not even gonna go into the alien weird like coming back like piece of it, let's just talk about the, 
the guy who's about to die. Imagine I said, the next president of the United States should be uh, this specific guy. And you like Google this specific guy. And this specific guy was convicted of murder and is on death row. He's about to be you know, killed because he was convicted as a murderer. Now, if you come back to me, you say, wait, you, you think this guy should be president? <laughs> that guy didn't actually, he hasn't died yet. We, what we're telling people is, is that their king came for them 2,000 years ago, that he lived a sinless life, which, by the way, unpacking that takes a little bit of time, right? That he died on a cross because the Romans decided that they had to kill him because he was claiming to be a king, and the, Jew, you know, the Jews got up, all worked up about him being a next Caesar and all this other political stuff, right? So we unpack all that for them. We say, look, he died, and then we say, but oh yeah, but three days later, he gets up. This is a weird message. It's a weird message. And so we have to own that. Uh, we, we increasingly live in a post-Christian world, in a world in which people have uh, received portions of this message, or they've received an incomplete version of it or whatever, and they have rejected it. So much to the point where, you know, 50, 60 years ago, having this conversation is easy because we all live in the world of the New Testament. We all live in the world of the Bible. People go to church. It's like the culturally acceptable thing to do. And even if people aren't real believers, they can trade in that language. They can trade in the gospel. They can do business with it in the real world. We don't live in that world anymore, not in America. In America, we live in a world that is increasingly past that message. We've grown up. We don't need God anymore. We don't need this Jesus anymore. That's the world we find ourselves in. So we have to remember that the first thing that people do when they hear the gospel of the kingdom, when they hear the gospel of the cross, the first thing that they're going to have to do is change their minds so that they can believe the message. And we have to do this in a way that's inviting and convincing. I want to bring up one more verse about uh, repentance being after conversion. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. I think the point was made in Acts 2, but I just want to, I just want to show you another example of repentance. Uh, because like I said, there's two, there's two kind of types of repentance we're talking about today, two kinds of changing. The first one is this mental change that has to take place for us to believe and accept the gospel in the first place. That's the first kind of repentance. We have to change our minds. In the first century, that was the idea that the Messiah uh, could die, that that was an acceptable thing for the Messiah to do, and that God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. In our times, that looks different. We have to unpack that differently. It looks different to us, um, working through all that. That's the first part of repentance. That's for a new convert. For us who are uh, Christians who have been walking with Christ for a period of time, there is an idea of continued repentance or continued change to get to the point of being conformed to Christ's likeness. That's how the New Testament describes it. And I want to point out here in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul, um, this is likely, by the way, the third letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, although we don't have the first one that he wrote. Uh, some scholars call that zero Corinthians, <laughs> zeroth Corinthians. Um, so this is likely the third letter that he's written to the Corinthians based on what he said in the other two letters. And he's fighting this battle over and over again with them about sexual immorality. And he's doing that because uh, the Gentiles in Corinth had this uh, temple service uh, that was uh, in small part uh, centered around uh, temple prostitutes. Okay, so 
So the whole religion, the fiber of the town of Corinth in that ancient world was a, a town of religion means sexual immorality <laughs> from, from a Christian perspective. They didn't consider it sexual immorality. Uh, they thought it was just normal business being a Corinthian, right? But from a Christian perspective, we would call that sexual morality. And he's fighting this battle in 1 Corinthians. He says, look, you should get rid of the guy who's sleeping with his father's second wife and whatever. Um, you know, but here he is still fighting this battle in 2 Corinthians 12. In verse 21, it says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not what? Repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Now, it is ambiguous in the English whether this means repented from a situation that they were doing before they were converted or after. But in the New International Commentary in the New Testament uh, commentary, uh, Paul Barnett notes that the tenses of the verb in this verse, quote, suggest persistence in sexual sin going back to some point subsequent or after their baptism, end quote. So grammatically speaking, what Paul is dealing with is he's dealing with Corinthian believers who still haven't repented. They haven't changed from their patterns of sexual immorality from before they were followers of Christ. And he's saying, look, you, you have to repent. You have to, to do that. So the point is that you have to repent when you come in. You have to change your mind. You accept a new Lord in your life. You say, I'm no longer Lord. Jesus is going to be my Lord. That's what you have to do to accept the gospel. Then as you continue in the faith, Genuine repentance is continue, it's a continued act of faith as you're following Christ, as you're walking with him. To give an example of this, I like to think of this in the context of marriage. Uh, throughout the Bible, God makes covenants with his people. Uh, he uses the example of marriage on multiple occasions to talk about the different covenants. Um, so just as we enter into a covenant with God, uh, when we are converted, when we come to Christ at the beginning, uh, we enter into a covenant with our spouse right? When we get married. So thinking about this in the context of repentance or changing our minds, we could say that when we initially enter into that covenant, that we decide we're no longer going to live a certain way that we lived before we were married, right? We're not going to go out on dates with other people than our spouses, for example. Uh, we're not going to look at people in a certain way, uh, right? Those are the types of things that we do. So does that ever change? You know, over the course of a marriage, does that ever change? So in other words, can you go to your spouse and say, honey, look, I've been really faithful these last five years. I've been really faithful. And so, you know, what do you think if it's, it's it okay for me to go do this thing for this weekend, go out and do this little thing over here? Like, I've been faithful for five years. Like, that's, that's good enough, right? <laughs> I think if, if one of us tried to do that with our spouses, we'd get slapped. <laughs> Boy, you better change your mind. <laughs> we better change our minds, right? So the point I'm trying to make is you enter into a covenant, you make that decision once, and the implications of that decision do what? They carry forward for the rest of your life. You make a decision. That decision happened one time. You stood up in front of people. You said, yeah, I do. I'm going to be married to this person. But that decision doesn't just end, boom, there. You have to maintain the relationship for the rest of your life. It affects your decisions going forward. So I think, you know, we have to think about repentance more generally as changing our minds and bringing them back to uh, what the Bible says is appropriate. And so when thinking about it more generally as, you know, we're changing our minds, you know, I've got this idea, I, I need to change it, I need to, I need to go a different direction, I need to ask God how to do this. You know, how often do we need to do that? How often do you need to do that? You know, how often do I need to do that? 
Whatever you do, whatever you do, just please don't ask Becca that question after the service, okay? Whatever you do, don't, do not ask that question to Becca. You do not want to know how many times I need to change my mind. <laughs> so when we think about repentance, I think about confession as well. Confession means to speak the same thing or to agree with someone. So who are we to agree with? God. We're to agree with God. And so when we confess our sins, as it says to do, when we mess up, we have to confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, we are agreeing with God that what we did is wrong and we want his help to help us change. We want to do better. And so it's as simple as changing our minds. God, I don't want to do that anymore. I want you to lead me into something better. And so as we think about repentance today, we're going to get to a couple more verses about what it's like to live a kingdom lifestyle. But I'm sort of wrapping up this idea of repentance here. This talk of repentance and confession has a point. Um, if, we, if we do these things, if we do these things just to like pat ourselves on the back, just to perfect ourselves, then the profit's going to be really limited. Uh, you know, we don't want to become like Pharisees. The Pharisees were very good at obeying. Pharisees are better than we are at obeying, probably. Uh, but their obedience uh, was limited because they were obedience for obedience's sake. They didn't understand the deep reason why. Their lives were not invitational. Their lives were exclusionary. And so we don't want to do that. We don't want to perfect ourselves just to pat ourselves on the back. There's a greater point in obedience the point of all of this, the point of changing, the point of God working with us in order that we would change, the point of entering into this covenant in the first place is so that our lives would become an open invitation for others to experience God's love, his goodness, his grace, his mercy. And so in other words, what repentance is about, it's not really in a large part about us. It's about living a life that blesses God, that it does bless you, uh, but it also blesses others. Repentance is about living a life that draws people in so that they see more. Repentance isn't about stodginess or about being holier than thou or about not having fun at all. Uh, it's about sharing true goodness and fun with others. It's about redeeming the human experience. And I know we've all seen countless verses throughout our lives, those of us who've walked with Christ, about evangelism, about getting out there, preaching the message, right? Sharing your, sharing your story about how the message should be spread. But I want, uh, I want to show you one fun way we can live the gospel. Let's turn to Isaiah 25. Because there's something about this kingdom message that is fun. And it's fun in sort of like a subversive way but it's fun. In Isaiah chapter 25, this is one of the sections we went to actually before our kingdom series. I think I alluded to it during this kingdom series, but I thought it was worth reading. It's one of my favorite kingdom prophecies. Isaiah 25 verse 6 says, On this mountain the Lord, or Yahweh of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. So in other words, this is talking about a party with steak and wine. How does that sound? Sounds pretty good. 
We'll just read the next three verses, God. I love them so much. But that's, this is the main point I'm trying to make is verse 6. Verse 7 says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So in other words, everyone's going to be invited. It's not just going to be Jews. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I don't know about you, but I'm excited that I believe in and trust in a God who is going to bring this goodness and gladness and rejoicing through his salvation to the point to where we can even enjoy parties together. And that's what he's talking about. He's saying he's going to prepare a feast of rich food. We're going to have steak. We're going to have wine. We're going to have all the trimmings. We're going to have all this fun. This is what God wants. The anti-gospel, the, the, the anti-Christian you know, message is God doesn't want you to have any fun. He just has all these rules. You have to jump through all these hoops. You have to do all blah, 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 right? Why well, believe in a God that does all that? We believe that God understands the human condition because he created the human condition. And therefore, he wants us to have the maximum fun possible within the confines of what he set up. But the point I'm trying to make is that the things that he set up is so that we don't get messed up, so that we don't have issues. Think about the Corinthian temple prostitution. How do you think the wives of the men who worshipped at that temple felt about temple prostitution? You think they were happy? That their husband was going and sleeping with all these random women at the temple? I don't think so. I can't imagine that that would be the case. So God is redeeming us from our fallenness, and he's helping us celebrate in the most positive way we can. And think about parties in our life. I don't know about you, but I've experienced a couple of parties in my life when I was in college that were not like this in Isaiah 25. They were not uh, equipped with good steak or good wine nor were they furnished with things that would be godly or holy, right? That's not the type of partying we're talking about. That's why I think this is somewhat subversive. We're taking the ideas of parties and we're redeeming them. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. This is where we're going to close. The early church understood this. They understood that living the gospel meant changing their lives meant changing how they lived, changing how they did normal everyday things, sanctifying them for God's purpose. And a large part of that revolved around food. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, this is in the context we just read where you know, they're repenting, they're, they're accepting Christ. And then this is how they start off in the faith. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Sounds like John the Baptist, doesn't it? Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here we can see this is how they changed. This is how they started living a life in Christ. And it involved parties. It involved having people over 
and rejoicing together and eating food. And I do want to point out that the breaking of bread language does include the idea of communion, but I think it is larger than that. It would have been a shared meal. And of course, they would have probably done communion in addition to that. But they would have had a party remembering what Jesus accomplished for them. But look at all the other stuff that's here too. There were wonders and signs being done through the apostles. They're experiencing kingdom power. They were uh, together and had all things in common. They were sharing things. You have kingdom love. I'm sure there had to be kingdom mercy in there too. As things got broken, they got shared, right? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to all as any had need. There's generosity there. That's justice. That's kingdom justice. So look at, look at all the things that they did to change their lives. These are not things that they were doing before they heard what Peter preached. This is things that they decided to change their lives based on what Peter said. So the early church grew precisely because they started living what I could call a kingdom lifestyle. Kingdom power was being manifested. Kingdom love was being shared. They are anticipating the kingdom by eating together, remembering what Jesus had done for them. The point I'm trying to make here is that it wasn't just obedience. They had fun. And we can do that too. We can have fun doing the things of God. God is not, uh, his boundaries are not meant to exclude fun. The boundaries are meant to exclude things that are bad for us. God is the God who invented fun. The things that we get enticed with, they're enticing, but they hurt us. So we have to trust, again, that God knows what's best for us, that he wants what's best for us. But we aren't in the kingdom yet. We don't experience everything that God has in store for us just yet. So as we conclude today, I think it's important to ask ourselves this question, what do we do with the gospel? We change. Exactly, we change. We live it together. We live these ideas that we've been living and dwelling in this last 10 weeks we live them together. We have what you could call holy fun. <laughs> we take these ideas of parties and we subvert them and show people what it's like to live around people who genuinely care for people. Unconditional love is not something that other people are going to experience day in and day out out in the world. They can experience it when they come to us and enjoy life with us. We can have parties, we can share food, we can enjoy time with each other. And through that, through our changed lives, that's how we invite others into experiencing what God has in store for them. What he, the goodness that he wants for them to have, the joy, the peace, all the things that God wants for them. That's how we invite others into that. So that's, that's a tall task that we have to be the type of people, the kind of kingdom people who are that city on, on a hill that shine that light that it's attractive to others. And not everyone's going to accept it, we know that. But to be the kind of people that can bring people in and say, look, is this what you've been missing? Is this what you're waiting for? Because we've got that. We've got that. Here in this house, we've got that here in this community. Let's pray. Father, help us to change. Help us to see the things that we still struggle with and for your help in dealing with those things. Father, help us to see you bigger and bigger, see your desire for our hearts bigger and bigger every day, and set aside the things that we've been dealing with and struggling with so that we can accept your more perfect vision for our lives. 
Father, we want to do that. We want to be the type of people that, that can invite people in, that can show them your goodness, your mercy, your love, your justice, all the things that we've talked about. And Father, we do this out of love. We do this out of love in response to your love, in response to the things that you've done for us. Um, we know that um, this world is a difficult place. The people out there think they've already heard. They've already heard your message, Father. And so we ask you to put people in front of us who are ready to experience your love, God, ready to experience your grace and your mercy because we want to invite them in. So, Father, thank you for your help in changing and being the people that you've called us to be, the transformed people that can follow your Son each and every day. Pray this in your Son's name, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.